When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz. Together with me today is uh, Stefan Slowinski, who is the Enterprise Software Analyst at Exane BNP Paribas, which is a a, uh, a lot of names in one uh, one bank. Um, uh, Stefan, you're with us in Paris today, I understand. That's right, in Paris today. And uh, thanks for having me, Eric. Pleasure to be on the show. Great. So um, so you are uh, you cover enterprise software. You're based in London, uh, but cover mostly US-based uh, enterprise software companies. So we'll get into the, de- we're going to jump into the, the discussion of, uh, first about the, uh, the macro uh, uh, world, and then we'll get into some individual individual stocks. But tell us first a little bit for people who don't uh, who don't know you, how you approach uh, your uh, role. Yeah, great. Uh, well, thanks again, Eric. And um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, I'm the uh, uh, large cap uh, U.S. software analyst for BNP Paribas Exxon. Uh, BNP Paribas is um, the largest European bank. It's I think the third or fourth largest bank in the world by assets outside of China. We have about about 200,000 employees um, uh, in a variety of different businesses and and, uh, continuing to grow, especially in the U.S. and and in the equities business, which is where I am. So um, with with BNP Paribas Exxon, which is the cash equities business, um, uh, really uh, started 20 years ago in in, in Europe and has built a a number one research franchise there in in the institutional investor uh, rankings and, and now building in the U.S. with about 250 stocks under coverage going to about 450 by 2025. Um, and so, yes, as, as you mentioned, I cover the, the hyperscalers. So that's uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. So we cover that within the software sector um, and then the usual suspects within the enterprise software space. And again, we try to take a global approach for most of those names. As you know, uh, 50% of their business is done outside of the U.S. So we try to keep tabs right. on that, um, you know, doing lots of checks on the ground with, with software buyers, software resellers about international trends. Um, of course, looking at the U.S. as well, um, and and try to take more of a, of a global approach to covering some of those uh, some of those big software names. Okay, so let's let's first talk about the macro picture. So, sure. um, if we pull back a little, um, twenty twenty two was a terrible year for tech stocks of almost every variety, uh, and uh, and enterprise software was no exception. Uh, largely a reflection of higher interest rates, I would uh, argue. Um, the first half of this year, uh, it was a new day, right? Uh, tech stocks were rolling. Uh, they still, uh, in many cases, support a very large um, uh, uh, year-to-date gains uh, mm-hmm. driven by a combination of things, I think. Uh, but with exhibit A was a, a sense that um, uh, uh, interest rate increases were slowing, that the Fed was almost done. Um, so we were all excited about that. Um, and then you add to that um, a uh, uh, this uh, AI uh, mania that's been going on now for 
really less than a year. It's remarkable that this really just started late last November with the arrival of ChatGPT. Now that's all anyone can talk about. Um, but that has been seen as an additive ingredient. And then I think the third thing on top of that has been this notion of um, Mark Zuckerberg's favorite phrase, the year of efficiency, right? Yeah. So uh, you had lots of people cutting costs um, in an era, uh, in a time of maybe slightly less top line growth, focusing on, focusing on profitability. And then all of a sudden things have come unglued again. Um, uh, we, as we talk, the market is having a very ugly day um, for tech stocks in particular. So where are we in this process? How are you feeling about the macro uh, situation as it applies to technology stocks and in particular, the ones you follow? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that being a technology analyst nowadays requires being a macro analyst as well and, and keeping an eye on those, uh, those 10 year rates. Um, yes. And it's a fact of life. Uh, you know, when you look at valuations, um, you know, the large cap software stocks may be trading on three and a half percent free cash flow yield next year. Um, you know, some as high as five and a half, some as low as obviously zero. Mm -hmm. um, but we're increasingly hearing investors, maybe more global investors, more sovereign wealth investors, more generalist investors who have a broader remit uh, comparing tech stocks to the five year treasury. Um, and so, uh, you know, certainly with those rates rising, as you pointed out, it has impacted tech stocks over the last 18 months. Um, and we continue to see that. Um, I think the second thing, as, as you highlighted, is kind of the macro just from an, a demand standpoint. Right. Um, and, and this is where really for the past, you know, 15 months, I would say we've been in this uh, sort of lethargic demand environment where mm -hmm. deal cycles have been elongated, um, decisions have been slowed, senior management are involved. There's really sort of return on investment based selling. Um, and that really hasn't changed just yet. Um, and, and the other thing that we've seen really for the last year or two is hoping that next year is a recovery. Um, and, and that's also, we're starting to get some jitters in the market looking at 2024. Um, you know, maybe it's still too early to see Gen AI coming through as a top line driver for a lot of companies. We can talk mm -hmm. about that. That's a debate. Yep. Um, but potentially consensus estimates are forecasting a bit of a recovery after a difficult 18 month period in terms of demand. Um, but we're still not getting confirmation of that. Um, uh, Accenture was the latest big tech stock to report results last week they gave 12 month forward guidance because it was their fiscal year right. um, and they were still quite cautious and saying ceos are still not really um, pulling the trigger on big spending um, because of confidence and and to come full circle a lot of that is uncertainty around rates and where they will end up yeah so let's talk a little bit about the big picture on ai which you alluded to and of course there is tremendous excitement about this opportunity right Almost every technology company, certainly all the enterprise software companies, have now announced some kind of a strategy. Um, in some cases, it's a bet the company strategy. In other cases, maybe not as much. But every company is all in on this. And then some of the leaders, um, uh, or the perceived leaders, have reported financial results over the last few quarters. Microsoft, mm -hmm. Adobe, um, uh, Amazon, Alphabet, there's a bunch of them. Um, and while they talk a lot about AI, I think what's clear is that the results, you saw this in Microsoft's most recent quarter, in Adobe's most recent quarter, that so far, we're not seeing it too much in the numbers. Now, I have to say, I don't think that's all that surprising, 
like they've just announced these uh, these products and it will take some time for them to get adopted. But I wonder how you feel about that in terms of near-term contribution from AI. Mm -hmm. and, and I would note, by the way, I think it's important for, for people to think about AI is not cost-free. And so like running these models and the inference software to, to do AI is expensive. And so, um, so there, there will be some revenue for some of these players, additive revenue, maybe a lot of it eventually, but maybe not mm -hmm. yet. So I, I wonder how you think about that dynamic. Yeah, well, we're starting to see it in the numbers. Unfortunately, it's, it's in the CapEx numbers for software companies. <laughs> so, right. you know, Microsoft guiding for 40% increase in CapEx this year. And, you know, obviously a lot of that's going to NVIDIA. So, you know, they're the one company that's benefiting from the top line uh, already. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're starting to see that come through. Um, you've seen some of the early movers, Microsoft obviously going live with Microsoft 365 Copilot on November 1st, earlier than expected. Um, you know, Google with Workplace, uh, Workspace is already live. Uh, Adobe, uh, you know, going live with um, its Gen AI capabilities uh, in Adobe Express and Firefly. So we're starting to see the products come to market. That's the first wave, right? It's right. it's these existing SaaS vendors with hundreds of millions of users that are you know using these platforms and, and where this capability can be relatively easily inserted into the platform, um, and and you know we're we won't see the monetization really come through until you know probably beginning of next year. Obviously, these are very big companies, so to move the needle is going to take some time. Right. Um, and and some of these companies, you know, I guess Microsoft, Adobe have also cautioned a little bit just on margin and, and free cash flow near term. So Adobe saying, you know, our margins are around 45%. They'll, they'll probably be there for the next two to three years. So don't expect much expansion. Um, you know, some pressure on gross margin as the, that high CapEx turns into depreciation and, and pressures gross margins a bit. So, um, you know, I, 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 see, I see a couple of waves playing out. The first wave is, like I said, those SaaS vendors. Next year, we should see uh, monetization coming through, which is good. Um, and then that second wave is going to be um, really the, the infrastructure providers, Microsoft, Azure, Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud, and, and enterprises all over the world going onto those platforms, um, trying to do their own model training, coming up with their own use cases to disrupt their own industries. And that's probably something we'll see you know, a bit more uh, in, in 2025. So, so let's talk about some of the names that you like. Um, so I want to talk first about uh, um, Alphabet. Uh, which is a yeah. stock that I know um, we've talked about some that uh, on which you are bullish and uh, Alphabet, of course, parent of, of Google um, has you just mentioned them in uh, as as we talk about the cloud cloud opportunity. Um, the one, one sort of interesting source of debate here is is how AI impacts their core business, um, mm -hmm. their research business. Um, on the one hand, it makes uh, it provides new fu functionality for people looking for information. On the other hand, it provides people with alternative ways of gathering that information, and it raises some question about their the core of their business or advertising business in the long run. So, talk a little bit about why you are bullish on Alphabet and how you think AI ends up impacting their business. Sure. Um, I mean, first, let's start with valuation. It's attractive. It's twelve times EV EBITDA about a five and a half percent free cash flow yield for next year. So um, you're seeing on days like today, it is outperforming because it does look relatively attractive. Um, secondly, um, before we get to the core business is Google Cloud. 
So it's only about 11% of sales, but um, uh, it's now profitable at a 5% operating margin. Mm -hmm. Those price increases, $30 a month, I believe, in, in Google Workspace for the Gen AI capabilities should help margin. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we see Google Cloud as well winning share in that cloud computing space against uh, AWS. Um, as more enterprises go to the cloud, more for AI specifically, and, and, and Google and, and Microsoft with OpenAI potentially having an advantage there, at least in terms of mind share. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that said, we, we think Google Cloud could be a $70 billion revenue business with a 25% operating margin um, in just around three years time. Um, and so, you know, that, that's a business that could be worth several hundred billion uh, dollars pretty quickly. Um, that, that's 70 billion relative to how big is that business now? Um, so it's about half that size now. Um, and, you know, right now, if you were to put Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud, and, and say that's 100% of the market, you'd have AWS at around 45%, uh, Microsoft Azure at 30%, and then Google Cloud at 15%. So about half the size of, of, of Azure and about one-third the size of, of AWS. And then how are you feeling about the, um, uh, the advertising yes. opportunity here? I mean, obviously, they dominate search. Uh, in a fairly complete way, uh, a monopoly, if you ask the Justice Department. Well, we can talk about that too. Um, but, but so how are you feeling about the, the the state of their advertising business, given both um, the, the this new wrinkle uh, AI, yes. and then also the state of the consumer economy? Yeah. So you know, clearly, macro is a risk. Uh, you know, it's a it's a more cyclical business tied to the advertising cycle. Um, but, you know, there are three things that I would highlight. One is they have been doing well the last couple of quarters. They've been taking market share and that business has held up relatively well. We, we continue to see that in the near term. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is Gen AI is a driver of digital advertising spend. Um, and so when you look at companies' overall sales and marketing budgets, we think about half of that is spent on content creation. Mm -hmm. and obviously, Gen AI is, is going to disrupt and is already disrupting that. It's going to become much easier, much cheaper to create content. Um, and so we think that in sales and marketing budgets, you could see a reallocation of spend away from content creation, taking some of those savings and actually allocating it towards the actual advertising itself. Um, and then when you combine that with the potential hyper personalization that we're increasingly seeing in digital advertising, it should make the, the ROI on, on those digital advertising investments go up. So again, it's another rationale for allocating spend there. And, and that should benefit Alphabet. It should benefit Amazon. It should benefit Meta. Um, you know, as an example, if, if you look at um, you know, what, what Amazon is doing with Amazon Prime, and, and Google will be doing the same thing with YouTube, um, which is you know, Amazon can use its, its advertising business and Amazon Prime um, you know, they know what you watch, they know what you shop, they know what you buy and, right. and begin to sort of real time create uh, targeted advertising images um, to you based on your likes. And of course, that's going to be very targeted um, and, and, and very um, uh, uh, profitable in terms of return on investment. Um, and so we think that could be good for digital advertising in general over the next few years. And then the final thing on the core business is um, Google's core businesses have largely been run independently, whether it be search, whether it be maps, whether it be YouTube long form, whether it be YouTube shorts, um, you know, whether it be e-commerce and connected TV, 
And what we're seeing now with, with BARD um, generative AI is that we're going to increasingly see a, a, an integration of those different services. And, and so I think that could drive better monetization um, across those different surfaces as they begin to, um, you know, better target advertisers, advertising and, and you know, leverage all of the, uh, uh, the users that they have. Yeah, I think uh, even just a week or so ago, they announced uh, integration of BARD with not just uh, the search, but um, with uh, Google Docs and Gmail and Maps and travel. And that idea of uh, of BARD as a, not not just a standalone chatbot, but as a your sort of guide to all sorts of things. Um, we, we happen to be Google Doc and Gmail users here, Barron's. Okay. And, um, and the idea that I could easily uh, search for, find information from, uh, in from, uh, from you know, notes I took several years ago or email uh, or inferences from email that I uh, collect over time. Uh, it's very powerful. And um, I'm excited to, uh, to start uh, uh, playing around more with that. And, uh, and, and the, the better integration of BARD with other things, there's a whole, there were initially a whole set of things BARD couldn't do. So you'd say, Bard, uh, show me a map of something, or mm-hmm. can you uh, uh, show me an image or something? And, and it hadn't been able to do those things. More and more, I think you'll be able to interact and 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 transact uh, with Bard, which I think, to your point, is uh, quite powerful. Yeah, and, and I mean, the exciting thing here is you have this kind of um, uh, coming together of multiple technology trends at the same time. You have the generative AI, um, you have the, the conversational technologies, you have the um, you know, with the uh, elimination of, um, you know, IDFA from Apple, um, more investments gone into using AI for advertising, targeting and personalization and, and monitoring. Um, and, and so these technologies are coming together at the same time. And again, you know, the, the, the big companies out there that have the users that have the data of which Alphabet is one of them, um, you know, should, should benefit. Um, I think as well, look, you know, ChatGPT has been a wake-up call for Google. Um, and so... Yes. Um, you know, you mentioned they didn't have these capabilities a few months ago. They may have had them. They just, you know, they've, they've been holding back on making them publicly available. They're still calling, right. calling it an experiment. And so um, in a way, from two different angles, this could be the best thing that's happened to Alphabet shareholders. One is it's a wake up call in terms of you have these great products and services. You're not monetizing fully um, and you have these great technologies that you haven't unleashed on the public. And if you don't do it, don't think you're the only ones that can do it. Someone else may come and do it instead. So we've seen that wake up call. And, and then secondly, you know, to your point earlier about the year of efficiency, you know, we've seen a bit of a wake up call there, which is, um, you know, just because you have lower margins than others doesn't mean you're going to be safe from the regulators. Um, and so, uh, you know, driving margin, driving efficiency um, is something that, uh, you know, investors and shareholders are looking for. And, and you can do that. Um, and at the same time, you know, be successful in product development and uh, monetization of these products. And, you know, so the final catalyst there is we do have a new CFO coming in soon for Alphabet, right. which is not really topic of discussion. I'm not sure why, but certainly it could be another mm-hmm. catalyst for the stock is someone coming in with a background in efficiency. Well, not only that, but of course, the current CFO, uh, Ruth uh, Porat, is uh, who's very much... Uh, I think admired on on the street generally um, has a new role, which is going to be in charge of dealing with this category on their 
um, income statement called other bets, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, includes things like Waymo and various other things that they're doing. But other bets has been sort of a sinkhole for cash for a long time, right? It's really kind of deflated their returns. And um, I think uh, people on the street generally would be delighted to see um, uh, the commitment there lower or maybe monetization of Waymo or other moving parts there. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, and, and there's been you know speculation uh, published uh, in the press around uh, Waymo and Verily, the healthcare business potentially right. being IPO'd, um, and again having uh, Ruth in charge of that division, um, you know, would would make sense to help monetize those those assets. A deep mind, of course, was in other bets, which is their large language model uh, AI yeah. research business in London, which they've moved into the core business now, which is a signal that they're obviously looking to monetize those models, Palm 2 and eventually Gemini, which can be used by their enterprise um, Vertex AI customers. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're starting to see more signals from them about uh, looking to reduce those losses. Obviously, I mentioned Google Cloud, which again is now turned uh, profitable. And actually, um, I think one thing maybe the market hasn't caught on a, a lot to is at the beginning of this year, there were a lot of uh, reduction in headcounts across tech, um, mm -hmm. sort of one-off, rip off the band-aid, lower costs and move on. Right. I think Google's um, cost cutting was more structural, more thoughtful. And, and actually it wasn't just about reducing headcount. You know, there are a lot of internal efficiencies, um, you know, eating your own cooking in terms of using automation and AI, which really don't come through until next year. Um, so we still get the benefit of, of that restructuring they announced in, in Q1 that that's going to come through in 2024. Okay. Um, so, uh, Earlier, you mentioned uh, you were talking about the market share in, in cloud and yes. um, talked about the three leading players. Now, I think inadvertently you hurt someone's feelings, right? So if Larry Ellison were listening to us right now, or, sure. if, or if software was listening to us right now, they'd say, hey, hold on a minute. <laughs> like, there's another player here, right? So um, Oracle um, is another stock, which I, I believe that you've been recommending that um, uh, is muscling their way into the conversation on cloud yes. and in the process is growing again, which it didn't for like a decade. Like there was no growth at Oracle. Um, they sound very confident. Um, I think we talked about this a, a little while ago that uh, if you listen to their uh, analyst meeting, uh, they did an analyst day at Oracle World um, yeah. a month or two ago, uh, that both Larry and, and Safra sounded like amazingly confident Larry actually outlasted all, like he just wouldn't leave. He wouldn't walk off stage. He was taking so many questions. It was fascinating. Tell me a little bit about your thinking on Oracle and whether they should be viewed as a legitimate competitor to AWS and the rest of the cloud vendors. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, for Oracle, of course, you have two main businesses, right? So you do have the applications business just right. to kind of get that out of the way and, and, um, you know, we cover Workday, we cover SAP, and, and we are seeing um, all of those 20, 30, 40 years of legacy ERP finally moving to the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a growth driver for Oracle. Um, you know, they obviously have the e-business suite installed base. They also have the acquired PeopleSoft, J.D. Edwards, Siebel installed bases. Right. Um, and Fusion ERP um, is an industry-leading product. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they rebuilt that from scratch, um, and they have a very strong product there. And they also do in the mid-market for NetSuite. So these products are growing, you know, sort of 25%. Um, and so you're finally at a point where the on-premise license business and, and applications has kind of faded away mm -hmm. and, and customers 
after having moved CRM and HCM to the cloud are, are now getting more aggressive about ERP. So, so that's a growth driver for Oracle. Um, and then on the infrastructure side, uh, you know, I think the, the main goal here for Oracle is you still have $15 billion of on-premise database maintenance revenue. I think Oracle wants to make sure that when all of those mission critical applications go to the cloud, they go to Oracle's cloud, right? Mm-hmm. They don't go to AWS, they don't go to Microsoft. And so I believe that you know Oracle's mission with um, uh, OCI is to have a, a credible competitive um, cloud offering. Um, and I think that's what they've done and that's what they've achieved. And, and we're starting to see you know large customers take notice. I do think um, mainly the success will come with Oracle's existing customers where mm-hmm. moving an on-premise Oracle workload to OCI um, will be um, a simpler, more cost-effective solution than replatforming into AWS or Azure. Um, and so, you know, I think that's their mission with OCI. Um, now, what we saw, of course, was Oracle also doing this interconnect relationship with Microsoft Azure, which is now morphed into actually having Oracle Cloud infrastructure sitting within the Microsoft Azure data center. Um, and again, I think that's an acknowledgement after 45 years that um, you know Oracle customers are not going to do everything in Oracle. A lot of them are doing lots of things in Microsoft Azure. And right. the interconnect announced uh, over a year ago was great, um, but still to, to lessen that latency, um, you know, let's actually move Oracle into the Microsoft Azure data center. And, and so that's what we've seen. And maybe more importantly, it's a signal to the customer base at Oracle that if you move into OCI, um, you know, you're not going to be captive. Um, you're not setting yourself up for the next 30 years of captivity. There is an opening there with Azure, and maybe we'll see that with other uh, hyperscalers as well. That should be a comfort uh, customers' confidence. So that's kind of from a strategic standpoint, and then just from a pure performance standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where Oracle's kind of proof of concept in terms of um, you know attractive costs for high performance. Uh, and again, uh, you know, uh, obviously at Oracle Cloud World, which I attended a couple of weeks ago. You had companies like Uber uh, on stage talking about all of their incremental computing capacity this year that they're going to add is going to be in OCI. So they're starting to get some of those uh, stamps of approval. One one thing that did happen when they reported earnings uh, recently, and they're, they are one of the more recent uh, tech earnings because of their odd calendar, um, but they they uh, they did report a, there was some disappointment. The quarter the, the stock fell. Uh, the most on um, uh, the, the largest one day decline in like two decades. Yeah. Um, and part of the concern seemed to be uh, tied to Cerner. Now, of course, they, they Cerner is a uh, uh, electronic health records company that they bought about a year ago. Um, and they seem to be going through sort of a quite familiar process that people who follow enterprise software, which is they're, they're shifting uh, customers off of on-premise uh, installations mm. to the cloud, but it does seem to be slowing them down in terms of reported results, and the street was not too happy about that. So, what do you, what, do you, how are you feeling about that issue? Yeah, so I, I think in those results there were, you know, two disappointments. One was OCI, even though it met their guidance. Um, I think some buy side, some sell side expectations were getting ramped up going into those results. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, Oracle reminded us that the guidance is the guidance, and you should, you know, typically take their guidance for what it right. is. Um, and hopefully, that will be a reminder uh, for the upcoming Q2. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so OCI, it should be said, you know, did grow in the mid sixties in Q1. So it, it did meet their guidance. Right. Um, well, which, which by the way is faster than all the other large cloud providers. It is, but it is decelerating. So, you know, it was growing near hundred percent. And, and so that was the, you know, this stock is up probably 60% over the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. Um, part of the reason why it was, it was accelerating over that period while, you know, Amazon web services was going from 40% growth to 10. Right. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that's now no longer the case, but yes, to your point, definitely still higher growth. Um, and then on Cerner, um, the company, um, uh, when they gave their Q2 guidance indicated that Cerner would be a 3% headwind to growth. Um, whereas, um, for the full year they had said it, up until then it would be a 1% headwind to growth. And so I think at the time of the results, there was some concern that there was, um, some deterioration in the business or an acceleration in the cloud migration, which was causing the results to be disappointed. Oracle did come out and clarify that at the investor day and, and said for the full year, we still expect Cerner to be just a 1% headwind to revenue growth. But um, I think by that time, obviously the damage was done. And, and, and I think for some investors, of course, it just kind of muddies the story a little bit um, that, you know, it's going to take time to, to turn around this business and, um, you know, the rest of Oracle is becoming a more pure cloud story in terms of Oracle infrastructure and uh, the applications. But but now they have this kind of Cerner business, which they have to kind of pull along and, uh, and and migrate over the years to come. Right. But you remain bullish on the stock, to be clear. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we still have an outperform rating. Um, you know, like I said, it's, it's trading on around 15 times EV EBITDA, around a 4% free cash flow yield. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that... Uh, We've seen after a decade of 2% growth, you know, I do think that we should see high single digit organic growth here coming through over the next few years. Um, and there still remains a lot of skepticism about that. So it's not yes. like that's a, a, a consensus view necessarily that, um, you know, there's still, if they can deliver on that, you know, I think there's still um, upside potential. Got it. Okay. So um, uh, we're, we've got, we're going to push this out maybe 10 more minutes. So I want to, um, I want to talk kind of about a few things. So first of all, I want to quickly touch on the other cloud vendors. So let's sure. talk about Amazon and Microsoft. You do not have buy ratings on either one of them. What's your, why the caution on each of those in whichever order you like? Yeah. So, um, I mean, first thing I would say is, you know, we at BNP Paribas on, we do tend to have more balanced recommendations. So we have outperforms, we've underperforms, neutrals, doesn't make sense for everything now to perform. Right. Um, so, you know, Microsoft fundamentally, we're, we're very positive on, on the company and, and on the strategy. We did downgrade um, uh, earlier this uh, summer um, because we saw valuation getting a bit ahead of itself. Um, we saw consensus expecting full year fiscal 24 growth at the time of 11%. We thought it would be 9%. Um, and, and we think that's kind of played out, right? I mean, the company did not give top line guidance for this next fiscal year. Expectations right. have come down a bit, um, and also, uh, you know, we, we thought consensus capex numbers were, were maybe too low, free cash flow estimates too high, and the debate has been: Does it matter? Right? Um, it's a good thing that they're investing in capex. Uh, it's a good thing free cash flow will be weak because you know they have these uh, blockbuster products coming out like Microsoft 365 Copilot. Um, so. Um, uh, you know, the stock has been in a little bit of a holding pattern since they reported those last. Uh, uh, Q4 results, but, um, you know, let's see, I think, uh, the announcement that, uh, the November 1st launch date for Microsoft 365 Copilot was probably earlier than expected. 
And so all of a sudden, instead of having to wait till next calendar year to get some data points, we could get some this calendar year. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, that, that could help the stock. So we are neutral, but fundamentally quite, quite positive. Um, on Amazon, we had been underperformed last year. We, we initiated underperform. We thought consensus um, free cash flow estimates were, were just too high. People were expecting a recovery in profitability in, in the core um, uh, consumer business to come through too quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, that did play out. You know, for the last two years, they've had $20 billion of free cash outflow. Um, but we're, we're seeing those improvements now come through. Um, so the margins have improved as, they, as they've gained efficiencies in, in um, fulfillment and delivery in, in, the, in the U.S. consumer business. And of course, for AWS, um, you know, we've seen growth now stabilize and, and, and margins in AWS, which had been down 700 basis points, also seeming to stabilize. And so stocks had a nice bounce this year as it looks like they've turned the corner. Um, we're still neutral for a couple of reasons. One is... Obviously, amongst enterprise software, it's the most exposed to discretionary consumer spend. So, right. you know, on a day like today, when interest rates are going up, you know, there are concerns that the consumer will be squeezed. And, and um, you know, Amazon has a history of lowering price or helping consumer in, in more difficult markets or environments, which could hurt profitability. So that's one risk. Um, and then on the cloud side, look, you know, we think with Gen AI, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Oracle, they will all benefit. But I do mm -hmm. think that the margin, what you're seeing with Amazon Web Services is Oracle having success sort of at the low end in terms of basic compute and storage um, with lower pricing, which could put pressure on Amazon Web Services um, at the low end. And then at the high end, sort of the platform as a service layer, uh, that's where we're seeing Microsoft, Azure, and, and Google Cloud gaining more mind share amongst um, customers who are saying, Okay, we, we want to go to the cloud. We want to you know do more AI. Um, you know, let's partner with Microsoft Azure and OpenAI. Let's partner with Google Cloud and um, you know their Palm Two models and so on. And so you know we do see Amazon maybe getting a bit squeezed at the high end um, and at the low end. Um, obviously, they've said that you know we have a, a federated approach towards large language models and and right. we don't need to have those partnerships. But then. You know, we saw last week, of course, the, the $4 billion investment in Anthropic and, uh, um, you know, bringing that on to AWS as a proof of concept for AWS and for their own proprietary silicon. Interesting. Okay. So um, I want to talk a little bit about a few of the other uh, key uh, enterprise software uh, players. So um, how are you feeling about Salesforce? Yeah, Salesforce, we do have an outperform rating on. Um I think, uh, again, from a valuation standpoint, if you think the company continues to deliver on its own year of efficiency, right. uh, you know, then the stock is, is trading on just 16 times EV EBITDA with more than a 5% free cash flow yield for next year. And that's not something we've ever really been able to say about Salesforce. So right. um, you know, from a margin standpoint, they've taken margins from 20% to 30% virtually overnight. Right. Um, and they've been under tremendous pressure on specifically that issue when... They yeah, absolutely. And, and they had five activists on the board and, um, you know, they've delivered on that. Um, and I think that's put some investors at ease who were wondering if it was even possible, but they've done that. But of course, the concern is now, well, what is the impact on growth from having done that? Right. Um, and so, you know, they're now trying to find that balance. And, and that's where you have a, a bit of a transition period where the stocks had a very nice bounce this year. 
but they're signaling, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to do another thousand basis points on margin. We'll continue to launch new cost-cutting initiatives and um, take out cost, but we need to find that right balance between growth and, and profitability. Our view is that the company's currently growing the top line at 10%. Um, obviously, that's a lot slower than 18 or the high teens it was growing right. at recently, but you think about it, they're growing at 10% in a, in, a, in a very weak environment for sales and marketing spend. Um, you've got very tough comps comparing to the, the COVID front office buying days. Uh, you have, you know, business with 8% churn, which is high for enterprise software. Um, you know, you have some uh, transaction-based business models in there like Commerce Cloud and, and MuleSoft, which tend to be weaker in these weaker demand environments. And despite all of this, you know, they're still growing at double digits. So our view is when you do get a better demand environment, um, cyclically, sales and marketing will recover. Some of those um, transactional businesses will recover. They just announced a 10% price increase. So that's going to be a tailwind. So we think actually that Salesforce in a cyclical recovery could be growing in the mid-teens again. And so, you know, for a company that could grow mid-teens on the top line with a 35% non-gap margin, buying back stock to offset that share dilution from stock-based mm -hmm. compensation, which investors are, are liking and wanting to see for more companies. You know, we think the stock's pretty attractive here. I think it's only on like four times sales if we look out a couple of years. That's, so, a, that, that's remarkable because if you think about historically, this has been, you know, one of the more highly valued enterprise software names and seeing it at four times sales is fascinating. It, yeah. it shows that they've got, um, that there's a certain amount of skepticism built into the stock price here, which. Um... Absolutely. And, and so, um, you know, there's a lot of skepticism and, uh, you know, they reduced some costs, but, you know, there were some reports that they were hiring again. And, right. they, they and there's, there's always been fear on the street uh, that Mark is just like one, uh, you know, uh, twitch away from um, spending, you know, billions of dollars to buy another uh, software company. And they have been highly questioned over time. Yes. I guess the last really big one was Slack, which um, I, I suspect um, uh, many people would argue was not a financially rewarding transaction, uh, given how much they had to pay to buy it. Um, so now they, of course, they dismantled oh, a few months ago their uh, their board's M&A committee, mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, kind of a line in the sand. of. Uh, but uh, they just announced another acquisition, right? So this was the thing on the last earnings call. They signaled that maybe they'll do M&A, but, you know, it's part of the strategy, especially with AI. Right. And they just announced a very small acquisition of, um, you know, a company that was, you know, financed by uh, Salesforce Ventures. Um, right. But... You know, they, they just need to execute over the next year or two, um, find that balance between growth and profitability, um, you know, and, and they're definitely sending the message. Look, we're, we're focused on driving free cash flow per share and on driving shareholder return. Um, and, uh, you know, Mr. Benioff likes being CEO. He's a, you know, a big equity holder in the company. And, and so, you know, I, I have no doubt that he wants to do, you know, what what will be good for the share price and that they're committed to doing it. OK, I want to touch on uh, two more names uh, before we run out of time. I guess you're yeah, out, of, run out of time, but I'm going to do it anyway. So uh, one is one of our uh, listeners. I'm sorry, I didn't get to a, a lot of listener questions here, but one of them is asking about Snowflake. Yes. Um, Snowflake is a fascinating company, another like fast growing cloud business. Um, you know, they they also been went through a period where like the the cloud titans, uh, you know, they they were hurt by this you know, kind of optimization trend with people trying to spend yes. less on the cloud and their growth has slowed. Um, 
they're still a fast grower, but their growth has slowed considerably. I'm wondering how you feel about um, Snowflake in this environment. Yeah, so I mean, we are neutral, um, but it's uh, growing still at 30%, now trading on 12 times sales. It's It hasn't ticked any investor boxes this year. And, and so what do I mean by that? Well, you know, Q1 was all about efficiency and, and, and you know, they, they haven't, you know, they still have negative 30% gap margins, 0% non-gap. You know, they haven't done that sort of Salesforce um, reduction of workforce and driving right. of margins higher. So, you know, they haven't sort of ticked that box. Um, secondly, uh, because of the high uh, multiple um, and the losses still on days like today, when you're seeing rates going up, investors are still not yet ready to go back into those right kind of loss making software names. Um, and then third, uh, you know, it is investors are waiting for that growth reacceleration. And so this is currently the big debate. Will AWS stabilize? Will Microsoft Azure stabilize? Will Snowflake stabilize? Um, you know, we're still not getting the signals that that's happening just yet, but we're certainly closer to stabilization than than not. Um, and, you know, well, I just spent three weeks, as you know, uh, sort of on the West Coast and going to different conferences and meeting with different companies. You know, Snowflake is still very, very well respected and is, is a game changer in the industry. Um, and so fundamentally, they're very well positioned. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think uh, once we get that evidence of stabilization in those demand trends, um, you know, maybe signs of a cyclical recovery, then the stock could start to outperform, but we're not we're not there just yet. Right. Okay. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to ask you to talk about um, is uh, the one uh, name that you have an underperform rating on, uh, which is Shopify. Yeah. Now, I don't I haven't looked at what Shopify is doing today, but I have to imagine it's not doing very well. No. Uh, on a day when uh, we're worried about higher higher rates and inflation. Yes. Um, Shopify, of course, is is by far the leader in this uh, e-software platform uh, business, and they've built out a you know very large uh, business, but has had some missteps. They tried to build a logistics business that didn't really work. They backed off from that, um, but they are still a dominant player here, and they've kind of yes. tried to extend their reach off of you know out uh, of the web and into the real world uh, for like payment systems in stores and stuff. What's your take on Shopify and how worried should we be about their exposure to the consumer economy? You talked about this a little bit in the context of Amazon. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, our, our call there is more valuation based, you know, after it had a very strong run, it was up 70% at, at one point, I think, uh, you know, we downgraded to, to an underperform. Um, and at that point it was trading on 10 times sales and, we were wondering, just like some people are wondering now on Salesforce, we were wondering if the company was coming to the end of its efficiency process. They had taken non-gap right. margins to 10%, right. um, sort of gap margins to zero. And, and we were wondering if they were ready to say, okay, job done. We sold the logistics business. We took out 20% of headcount, you know, major steps, very difficult steps, I'm sure. Um, but now it's time to go back to the bread and butter and focus on growth. Um, and so, between some of those uncertainties around the commitment to stick to the margin and cash flow targets, um, and of course the discretionary consumer exposure, you know, we 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 we've been underperformed. Um, however, uh, you know, I would say they have a new CFO. Um, you know, we probably will get a, an investor day from them, maybe beginning of next calendar year. Um, they have taken big steps, as I've mentioned. 
uh, seems like they are increasing the cost base again, but, uh, you know, at a more measured rate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, fundamentally, I think it's a, it's, um, you know, they have a great product um, and a very competitive product. You know, I, I still worry that maybe they're trying to do too much, right? They're in 100 countries around the world. They're now moving into the enterprise. And, and as we know, that's a different selling motion and, and can be expensive to build that channel. And, you know, so selling logistics is probably the right thing to do, but they still have a lot on their plate. Um, so, um, but look, it's, it's a good company, a great product. Um, and, you know, there probably will be a time to, uh, to, to buy the stock. We just think it's still a little bit too early. Great. So much more to talk about and uh, no more time to talk about it. Um, uh, Stefan, thank you so much for uh, for being with us. My pleasure, uh, Eric. We will have you back again uh, before too long. Uh, have a good earnings period. Maybe we should talk after that. Yeah, looking forward uh, to that. <laughs> yeah, take enjoy your uh, slow week for now. Um, yes. Thanks to everyone for uh, being with us today. Uh, once again, um, please join us again tomorrow. Market Watch uh, real estate reporter, um, Arti Swaminathan, uh, and uh, we'll be talking to, with Andy Walden from Black Knight about uh, housing markets, home prices, interest rates. Thanks to all of you for being with us today. Be well, stay safe. Thanks very much. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.